This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Sir Julian Priestley. Julian Priestley was the Secretary General of the European Parliament, its most senior civil servant, for 10 years, and now he's a writer and commentator, and most recently published a, a political novel, a thriller, called Putsch, available, as they say, at all good bookshops. Uh, Julian, it's almost five months today since the famous referendum on UK membership of the European Union. How do you see things now, five months down the line? First of all, we're in entirely uncharted waters. Uh, Article 50, which uh, Jean-Claude Pires, who you interviewed recently, um, had something to do with the writing of. Article 50 was never meant to be used. And so we're into a process of extraordinary complexity and maybe what's going to come out of the court cases at the moment about about the parliamentary control of this process will take us into very, very complicated areas with the government having to be clear at the outset what part of all this body of community legislation which applies in the EU will continue to apply. So there's basically a fog there compounded by the fact that within the government there are clear divisions between those who wish to have basically a complete break with the European Union and those who would like to save what can be saved in terms of access to the internal market, membership of the internal market, membership of a customs union. And the Prime Minister, uh, and we have this on the authority of anybody who's had anything to do with her, tends to play cards very close to her chest, is a secretive person, uh, doesn't delegate, is a detailed person, which may not be the qualities most, most, most required in a process which requires leadership. So I think it's unfortunate that at a time of this great crisis, we have a government which is led by, to use the words applied to Lord Liverpool, the arch mediocrity, <laughs> and an opposition about which perhaps we may talk later, but which uh, defies description. Okay, so the, so far, I, mean, I seem to remember just after the referendum, people were still in shock, but even the, the Leavers, most of the Leavers were saying, well, maybe let's go for a more of a soft Brexit option rather than a hard Brexit. That view now has changed to a much more uh, categoric hard Brexit uh, position as far as the government is concerned, not just the famous Brexiteers, uh, Fox, Davis and, and Johnson, but also the, the government as, as a whole. Uh, do you understand why that, that development has happened over the, the course of a few months over the summer? I think it's because the Prime Minister herself is convinced that immigration and control of borders is the key. And once you go down that route, basically you've said that can't mean staying within the internal market. Uh, And that will also mean that the options available to you, remember during the course of the campaign, uh, the options were laid out like an extraordinarily rich menu. Norway, uh, Canada, Albania, uh, whatever, all of these possibilities will be open to us. Well, actually, if you say, we're not going to allow free movement any longer, Uh, we will treat the EU member states in exactly the same way as we treat uh, the rest of the world. If you go down that route, then you've basically said, we can look for some kind of trade agreement further down the line, but it will not be full access to the internal market, and it certainly won't be membership of the internal market. And I think that in narrow party terms, she's not wrong. 
because it, were she to compromise on that question of borders and the control of borders, then I think she'd have a lot of trouble with her backbenchers, with members of her own government, let alone with whatever's left of UKIP. Okay. The, the EU27, as now we come to, to call them, the other members of the European Union, to many seem rather dogmatic uh, about the, the inviolability, the indivisibility of the famous four freedoms, one of which, of course, is free movement of, of people. Do you, do you, you sympathise with the EU27's view that we can't start tinkering with free movement, otherwise the whole European construction uh, collapses? Well, I think you, you might consider this to be a corporatist reaction. But actually, if you, uh, if you easily concede the notion that there'll be a huge Brexit dividend, uh, then you're really saying to member states, put as much pressure as possible, uh, go for whatever's in your short-term narrow interest, and you'll be rewarded. I think there's that element to it. Uh, secondly, free, free movement of persons is something which has brought huge economic benefits to the member states who have been, if you like, the net beneficiaries of that immigration. Mm. Uh, that, that although you can quibble with the idea that perhaps, uh, uh, or, or you can say that it was premature of Britain in 2004 to say we won't have a transition period. And then there was the underestimate of the number of people right. likely to come. But the arrival of this rather large number of Poles, Lithuanians, etc., has had a tangible effect on, on the British economy. It has boosted growth very considerably. Uh, it has passed off extraordinarily well with just almost anecdotal difficulties very difficult to identify what those difficulties were, but it has worked terrifically well in economic terms. And uh, I consider that this is not some just some question of principle. It is part of the big economic advantages of the EU. And so to sacrifice that uh, or to compromise on that would not be in the interests of the EU. But frankly, it seems to me, from my vantage point, that even in the, the British Labour Party, there's, there's a more and more discussion about we have to have some controls over free movement. Um, you can tell me that the Labour Party itself is, is, is divided um, on, on that issue. But, I mean, why has this, this now become almost a mantra on, on the left as much as the right in Britain that we have to do something, quote-unquote, about free movement? Yeah. I think there are two factors. First of all, there hasn't been clear leadership on it. If you follow the, the statements of the leader of the Labour Party or the shadow chancellor, uh, you, know, you have to pay your money and take your pick. Uh, it varies by the day, even on this question of free movement. Uh, secondly, there is undoubtedly a concern in, uh, in the north of the UK, in those what used to be safe Labour seats, mm. that UKIP have made big inroads using this question of immigration, and I think it really is a question of immigration rather than free movement, uh, as a means of, if you like, undermining Labour's bedrock support in those areas. And there are a lot of MPs who see that their constituencies... Labour MPs, yeah. Yeah, 
their MPs, their, their constituencies, uh, have um, uh, voted leave, sometimes with big majorities, and they feel that they have to uh, to respect, if you like, what they judge to be the main concern. And there's a lot of talk about the strain, perhaps the word that's always used, on social services, on education, on housing. A lot of that appears to me to be anecdotal. And one of the things which has emerged from uh, the, all the, the memoirs of those heavily involved in the campaign is the difficulty to try to mm. find concrete examples where yeah. that strain has been intolerable. Yeah. So you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the, the court case, uh, the court judgments. Um, and as you know, the government is appealing um, the, the High Court judgment of a few weeks ago. How, to what extent is that an opportunity for Remainers or people who maybe have changed their mind about leaving the European Union to get to force the government, frankly, at the very least, to be more transparent and accountable to Parliament, uh, or at the very least? And we'll go on from there to see whether there's more there's a more strategic uh, impact as well. Well, clearly, if the uh, if the Supreme Court um, sides with the High Court and doesn't give in to the kind of political and populist pressures to which it is uh, subjected, uh, then that gives Parliament the opportunity, first of all, to approve art the triggering of Article 50 with conditions. Mm. Maybe it'll get more than that. Maybe the government has to come forward with a comprehensive bill. This was what was hinted at by one member of the Supreme Court or conceivably to refuse to trigger Article 50 because the mandate for the, the negotiations which the government is putting forward is unsatisfactory. So there's a, like a range of possibilities and I think it will enhance the possibilities of detailed scrutiny of those negotiations and of course it does mean that at the end of those negotiations, but we're talking about Article 50 here, yes. At the end of those negotiations, there will have to be another parliamentary debate and vote. And it seemed to me that Mrs May, at the beginning, was arguing that Parliament should be somehow excluded from the whole process. Yeah. I think she's had to concede already that there'll be some say at the end, that there'll be scrutiny during, but now she's probably, if the Supreme Court judgment goes the way that one might expect, she will probably have to accept that it is Parliament which decides on the triggering. Article 50. Okay. We are now all experts, of course, in Article 50. Maybe a few months ago that was not the case. It certainly was not the case in my case. It was certainly not the case in the government's case. Government's uh, that's for sure. And so let's be clear. I mean, I'd like to maybe in slightly shorthand uh, terms refer to Article 50 procedure as the base of the divorce. In other words, uh, the UK extricating, extracting itself from its current uh, EU membership commitments, as it were. Um, to what extent uh, is, it, and is it almost meaningful, meaningful for the House of Commons, the British Parliament, to have a say in, in the terms of the, of the divorce when what really matters is maybe the future relationship with the European post-Article 50 uh, completion? Yeah, I mean, I think although one makes a distinction between what is in the Article 50 basket and what comes after, which is the longer-term trading relationship, I think the government's got to come clean at the beginning about it all. And Article 50 isn't just a technical matter, because there's big money involved. The sort of figures that have been used this week by, by the Germans, about 65 to 70 billion, you know, 
goodbye the 350 million for the health service uh, per week. Uh, there, there is a big financial uh, tag at stake here. Uh, but I think the government at the outset has got to lay out the store and also say how it gets from an exit in perhaps 2019-2020 and uh, an agreement of some kind on trade perhaps in mid-2020s or even at the end of 2020s and what happens in between and what kind of transitional arrangement, members of the European Union coming in have transitional arrangements, it's I think going to be necessary to have a transitional arrangement for getting out because the gap between 2020 and a definitive trading arrangement with the UK could be a long one. All right. Could be indefinite actually if you look at what happened at the much more <laughs> innocuous Canadian deal which right. has proved so difficult to get through uh, all the stages of, of approval in the EU. Okay well to finish off then Julian on a slightly different note um, it's clear to me you're rather unimpressed by at the very least the lack of clarity on the government side in terms of its strategy it, it's actually appreciation of, of what's at stake actually and on the different procedures to to to, to follow and to be cognizant of um, but um, and we talked a lot about uh, so far about differences between hard Brexit and, and soft Brexit and the new trading arrangement uh, post Article 50's completion. But you've written also recently uh, a, a wonderful article where the headline is, uh, the title is Respect the Referendum Result, Hell No. That gives me a cue to ask you a final question. To what extent do you think the whole 23rd of June result is potentially reversible or is that simply a sign of the Remainers being in denial, if not in refusal? Well, this particular Remainer is in refusal. I refuse to accept that result because I believe that result was engineered on the basis of lies, deception, which is a kind of extra layer after 40 years of willful withholding of information to the British people about what the Union is about, what it does, and why membership of the Union is important. So yes, I am out and proud as a Remainer who refuses the result of the 23rd of June. However, I can understand that at this stage, it is at the beginning of a very long process, it will be difficult for a lot of politicians to take that particular line. All I would suggest to uh, people in my own political party, the Labour Party, or to others who are of goodwill, who uh, are unhappy about that result, engineered on the basis of lies, with a gerrymandered electorate, because you and I weren't able to vote in the, in, in, in the referendum campaign, despite the promises that have been made to us, and many other people were denied, were disenfranchised. But to those people who are on the political front line, but who regret the decision of 23rd of June, I would say don't rule things out at this stage. This is a long saga. And you know, public opinion, and we talked about in, in Labour constituencies in the North, yeah. I think public opinion is volatile on this. And when people start to see the complexities, 
and the impact. The dangers that there would be in terms of the rights and protections that they have under EU law, the economic financial impact, then maybe there will be a clamour for an opportunity to look again at this issue. Julian Priestley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.